Hello everyone and welcome to this, the In Context podcast with me, Gregor Thompson. This is episode 28 and for this episode I spoke with Aaron Kimberley, who is the founder and executive director of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance in Canada. He has also been a mental health clinician since 2008. The conversation we had mainly surrounded Aaron's experience medically transitioning in 2006, the current situation surrounding trans individuals, policy, trends and possible consequences, as well as the ways in which the medicalization of gender transition could affect young people. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a very long time because I find this topic extremely interesting as the changes surrounding gender has the potential to alter the very fabric of society and culture. And so I believe if we're going to change society in such drastic ways, we better get it right and not rush these changes so that those who pay the possibly negative price of these changes are not vulnerable individuals. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you quickly about the sponsor of the podcast. So this episode is brought to you by the Struggle for Meaning newsletter. This is a weekly newsletter in which I send out every Sunday for free a short article concerning embracing struggle. If you're struggling to be more productive, to be healthy, to achieve your dreams, perhaps you've been chasing the wrong thing. A lot of us believe that we should be aiming for happiness, but this to me is an unwise pursuit as happiness comes and goes without any control from us. But there is one constant in life that we rarely admit, and that is struggle, suffering, pain. And the best way to feel fulfilled is to bear that responsibility of struggle, is to embrace it, is to volunteer yourself to it. That's the way to be more fulfilled in life. It's the reason why we feel good after exercising, because it's a struggle to exercise. It's a struggle to eat healthy, but we feel good when we do. We feel good after we've had an uncomfortable conversation, but it's definitely a struggle to have it. So that's why I created the newsletter. Along with the article, I also provide tips, strategies, and recommendations to help you along the way. To sign up again for free, go to gregorthompson.com. The link will be in the show notes. You just need to confirm your subscription and make sure you check your spam folder for your welcome newsletter. If you add me to your contacts, you will receive it every week in your inbox for free. And that's it. Once you've subscribed, you're on your way to struggling more and being more productive, healthy and motivated. And lastly, this is the last piece of housekeeping before we get into the conversation, I promise. To stay up to date with everything concerning the In Context podcast, to watch short clips from the podcast, everything concerning the Struggle for Meaning newsletter and all of my other work, you can follow my social media channels. My Instagram is Gregor S. Thompson, all one word. My Facebook page is Gregor Thompson journalist. And you can watch the podcast on my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. All of this will be linked in the show notes to make it easier for you. So please click them, subscribe to all my social media channels and my YouTube page. It's genuinely very much appreciated. And it's the best way you can support the podcast. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and you can follow and subscribe there. That would genuinely be very much appreciated. But now I've kept you waiting long enough. Here's my conversation with Aaron Kimberly. So Aaron, I thought we'd maybe start chronologically and we'd start with your journey and what led up to you transitioning. Was it 15, 15 years ago now? I think it was 15 years. I feel like I've been saying 15 years for the last three years. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the years uh, yeah, kind of merged together the last few months. Yeah, that's right. It, yeah, so it's been about 15 years. Um, I mean, how I describe it now is probably quite different than how I would have described it, you know, even five years ago, because um, I've learned a lot about what gender dysphoria is um, over the last couple of years. 
so I'll describe it um, using some of the terminology as I as I understand it today. So I had what um, I would call uh, uh, sorry I have what I would call early childhood onset gender dysphoria. Um, from it started about age three. So as soon as, soon as I was able to start class, you know, categorizing males and females into, into separate categories, I started to experience it. Um, of course, I had no language to describe it. It was it was very confusing. Um, but whenever I was confronted with a situation in which I had to figure out which category I belong in, so anything from going to a toy store where toys are categorized male or female or choosing clothing where there's a boy section and there's a girl section or um, at school when you tell the all the boys line up on one side of the gym and all the girls on the other. So all of those kinds of situations where I had to make a, a, you know, a cognitive um, decision to categorize myself, that's when it, that's when it would, would come up and cause me confusion and distress. Because um, I just had this, this sense that I couldn't explain that I belonged in the male category for some reason, even though I knew mm -hmm. that te technically wasn't true. Um, I still had this just persistent relenting f drive or feeling that, that that was the case and that some kind of mistake had been made. So that, I mean, that's, I think a fairly, when we think of a trans person or, or a, a kid, that's that's often the narrative that we, we think of is just these kids that from a very early age demonstrate extreme gender nonconformity and my parents would say the same thing it wasn't I mean I didn't discuss it with them they don't they didn't know my internal struggle but they certainly knew that I just had this persistence to always appear like a boy to the extent that um, in elementary school I was um, registered on a boys baseball team for a season because ever people that didn't know me personally and didn't know my family thought that I was a boy um, and that continued throughout my childhood. There were definitely periods where I tried to just kind of cooperate with societal norms and appear more feminine. I, I tried to do that to fit in, but it, it felt very inauthentic to me. It, um, you know, my high school grad, um, I wore a dress just because I wanted my parents to be able to have their photographs and, and appreciate that moment. And, um, but I felt like a drag queen doing that. Um, so that, that was sort of in in short my childhood experience. I mean, it, it, things like, um, you know, if if I went swimming and I would just see all the other boys, you know, they wore swim trunks, and that's what I wanted to do. I, there were times I went swimming with just a pair of shorts on and and no shirt as as a child before my body developed, of course. But um, it was when puberty and my body developed that things became extra distressing um, because mm -hmm. my my mind had mapped my body according to how i saw myself so my mind had had you know people a lot of trans men even talk about having experienced like a phantom penis as though it had been amputated um so our minds sometimes map when you have this this type of gender dysphoria it maps your body according to your self-perception and so i experienced my own body as having a flat chest and stuff and so when i started to develop breasts in adolescence it, it felt like tumors attached to my body because it didn't fit with how my mind had mapped my body. So sort of the reverse effect, I think, of like a phantom sensation if a body part had been amputated. Um, when I was 19, I was having a lot of, uh, all through, through adolescence, I was having a lot of gynecological problems. Um, and when I was 19, I eventually uh, had a, a diagnosis. I had a very large internal cyst 
that was causing me problems and about the size of a grapefruit. And so I went and had surgery to get that removed. Uh, it was attached to what was believed to be an ovary at that time. And when it was removed, the surgeon said, you know, it, it, the cyst had damaged um, my internal organs to the extent that they had to just remove some of, you know, the internal organs because they couldn't differentiate between the cyst mm -hmm. and the organs. And, and they did a biopsy on the ovary at that time. And um, it, it came back, no cancer or anything, but it came back um, having been an ovo an ovotestes which is like a it's like a hybrid ovary testicle it, it contains tissue of both um the surgeon at that time just reassured me that it was gone um it, it is a cancer risk when you have one um so it is a very very rare um dis disorder of sex development or, or what people might more commonly understand as an intersex condition so i didn't know i had it up until that point there had been no external signs that I had an intersex condition. My testosterone levels had always been um, high, um, but I didn't know I, that I had this this um, DSD until I was 19. But he just sort of brushed it under the rug. He said, it's gone, so it's not going to cause you any more problems, and so don't worry about it. And I, he didn't know that I experienced gender dysphoria. So when I learned that in my mind, the gender dysphoria and that condition were, were somehow related, um, I am also same-sex attracted. I lived... Um, my early adult life um, in the lesbian community and met a lot of very masculine butch lesbians at that time and started to make sense of it as this is something that some gay and lesbian people experience that we are masculized or feminized for some reason um, both in our in our you know mind and bodies so I didn't give it much more thought than that I mean it was still something I struggled with that never went away but that's how I understood it for many years until I saw a documentary on TV um, so I would have been, been about 33 at that time. I think it was 2005 or 2006. I saw this documentary on mainstream television about trans kids and they were just, you know, the kids were telling their stories and their, their stories sounded identical to mine. You know, this early childhood onset persistent experience of cross-sex identification. And they said that the way that the, the documentary was framing that was if you have these experiences, it means you are a, tr a trans person. So I don't think they talked about that back then it was gender identity disorder, not gender dysphoria. So back then they didn't talk about that disorder. They just said, if you experience this, you're a trans kid and these kids were all transitioning. So I thought, okay, well then that, that explains my experience then because that is mm -hmm. absolutely, they described my experience to a T. And so it was very easy to convince me then that because I had these experiences that it there it meant I was a trans person as like this separate category of personhood. And so I bought that um, and um, very quickly, you know, went to um, a gender clinic and said, look, I had these experiences and I saw this documentary, so I must be a trans person. And they heard my experiences and said, yeah, I mean, you must be a trans person. And did I didn't understand what gender dysphoria really was at that time. I didn't know any of the medical literature um, and I was started on hormones and it was, I was, a, I did go through an assessment process over se several months. So back then there was, there was an assessment process before mm -hmm. hormones mm -hmm. and then, and then again, before any surgery. So I was um, evaluated by a psychologist again, before I had any surgeries done. Um, so that's that's it in a nutshell in terms of how I just sort of arrived at the medical transition. Mm. And so 
before the surgery, during that sort of assessment process, was there any was there any doubt on your part, or was was were you like very certain before getting the surgeries? Was there any sort of contempl? Well, obviously, there was contemplation, but was there any mm-hmm. thoughts that maybe this wasn't the right thing to do? My reservations were. I mean. Pr- there was no doubt in my mind that I was a trans person, according to that okay. definition, because, I mean, it was very clear that I had that experience from a very early age that never went away. So I was never unclear about that. When I did receive the diagnosis of gender identity disorder, I believe mm-hmm. that diagnosis was correct. Um, I had reservations about the medical aspects of it, um, just because of any, you know, the potential risks. It seemed very far-fetched. It seemed like a a Pinocchio story, you know, that, that it seemed really far-fetched to think, well, I'm never really going to be a boy and, um, and worries that these medical interventions would, you know, cause cancer or, or something. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely had reservations about the long, my, the long-term health benefits, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't have any doubts. Like some people, they talk about, you know, am I trans enough or do, you know, am I actually trans? I never had any doubt that I had gender identity disorder because that was very clear to everyone around me when I was a child. And so those words, gender identity disorder and gender dysphoria, um, maybe we should start um, with defining what what are they? What does that mean? So according to the to the DSM-5, so our current um, diagnostic, diagnostic, diagnostic manual um, mm-hmm. describes three separate pathways to gender dysphoria. Um, so one being the childhood onset type that I experienced, which is highly correlated with homosexuality. There are, um, uh, sorry, I'll get to the set to the second one in a minute. So, so that, so that type, so there's one pathway of that early childhood onset, especially in the boys, it's very, almost guaranteed that those boys will end up being same sex attracted. The girls there's still a strong correlation with homosexuality with girls, but it's not as strong as with the boys. There are okay. some heterosexual women that experience childhood gender dysphoria who do outgrow it, but most of ki- most kids, male or female, with childhood onset gender dysphoria are going to be same-sex attracted as adults. Uh, so that's one type. The second type um, is associated with um, transvestic disorder. Um, so... Uh, people that have sexual arousal to cross-dressing, some of that, those people experienced um, uh, something called autogynephilia. So beyond just feeling arousal to wearing women's clothing, they, they also experience arousal to the idea of, of having a female body. And that, mm-hmm. can, and that can progress into gender dysphoria, especially later in life. So those um, boys aren't typically gender non-conforming as children. They're usually very typical heterosexual boys, uh, often keep that, um, the sexual arousal part, a secret. You know, they might try on their mother's clothing in secret when no one's at home, uh, for example. So parents aren't often aware that that's happening. Um, and it tends to, you know, because children aren't overtly sexual, but it, it, it tends to intensify in adolescence for those boys. Um, so they might be very typical boys up until adolescence, but when their sexuality kicks in, those mm. those feelings might intensify, and that might at some point later in life um, progress into gender dysphoria, um, meaning the strong desire to actually become women. 
Mm. Um, and then the third type, which is which is very rare, is related to intersex conditions. There are a handful of because there's many different kinds of intersex conditions, and not all intersex people experience this. But there are some intersex conditions where gender dysphoria tends to to be more common. It it's mostly the natal females that were exposed to too much testosterone um, during fetal development may kind of have this strong sense of I was assigned wrong mm-hmm. at birth. So that's my understanding of gender dysphoria, those three separate pathways. So using the words gender dysphoria, it, it, well, to me, it has um, medical implications or it implies, um, it has medical connotations, that's what I'm looking for. Um, and so I suppose some people would maybe say that that's, that's wrong to say that it's a medical condition or it's anything it's a psychological condition. Some people would say, no, it's just that they were born in the wrong body and that they are that they are a woman or they are a man. And um, so I suppose, what, what would you say to that argument? Well, um, I do think it's a condition of some kind. I think there's still mm-hmm. a lot not understood about it, you know, whether mm-hmm. there is something neurologically different about us, whether it's uh, whether it is like a mental health condition, whether it, so I, I don't I think there's still a lot of question marks about what causes it and what is it. Mm-hmm. Um, my I'm leaning towards the developmental model of, of it. I think it's a part of the psychological development of gay and lesbian people in terms of the, the childhood aspect of it, um, because most people with childhood on childhood gender dysphoria do outgrow it. So if it was if it was like a wired in mechanism, um, I wouldn't think that's that it would be possible to for someone to outgrow it. But the, what psychologists who developmental psychologists um, like Dr. Zucker, for example, um, who used to run a clinic back in you know the seventies and eighties and nineties into the early two thousands, he felt that if you catch it early enough in childhood, you can, you can kind of help it to, to desist before it really solidifies into a, um, into a stable concrete identity. But he feels, and as many psychologists do, that that if it, if it persists into adolescence and early adulthood, the chances of it desisting at that point is unlikely because it's, it's a solidified sense of self. And undoing that at that point could, I think could, could potentially do psychological harm. So before you transitioned, you said that you had um, a period of time where there was um, assessments, psychological assessments and stuff like that. So would you, that wouldn't be described as um, gender affirming, like the, the, psycho, the psychological test, it was, mm-hmm. was that um, affirmation or was that purely just listening and, and trying to gauge the situation? When I was assessed, um, so it was the very beginnings of what we call the affirmation model. So there still was um, there still was an assessment process, but it wasn't so much for the purpose of um, uh, of trying to help you not be that thing. It was it was very much for the purpose: Are you psychologically of sound enough mind to make these right. choices for yourself? And um, so it's gone a lot more in that direction over the years where assessment is, is slowly being whittled down more and more and more, mm-hmm. um, seeing it as, as more of a human rights issue that, you know, people have a right to do with their bodies what they want, as opposed to any kind of diagnosis or um, 
you know, there's less and less of a role of a clinician in, in the process to, to be, to be a decision maker in that process. Um, but back to your question, just before we get too far from the question of, of, sure. you know, gender affirming or, or affirming that you are the sex that you think you are. My understanding of it is it's a condition of some kind, um, that if it persists into adulthood, may, it, it may not ever be resolvable. Um, but I think we have choice. I think we have choices about what to do about that. I mean, I think if you think of it as, as this is a condition we can choose to, to medicalize or not medicalize. I mean, a lot of butch lesbians that I knew over the years had gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder and had, it's not that it ever went away, but they had a strong identity of, as, as a butch lesbian and for them that was enough and they didn't want to medicalize and, and so it's not like all of those women are trans and i wouldn't want to impose that label onto them i think when we have this experience and i think there's probably different degrees of severity of it i think there's a lot of factors why some people can cope with it better than others um and you know i, I so I, I do reserve an adult's life to make that choice if if they're suffering but I see transition as a kind of legal fiction. I don't, I don't feel like I'm not deluded. I don't think that I am a biological male in, in every way, just as if I had been born male. Um, I think I have a legitimate medical reason for having the condition, but I still understand that the condition is in my head, whether it's neurological or psychological. It's, it's, it's a condition of my own perception of myself and having medicalized and granted the opportunity to do this i see that as a legal fiction as a, as an accommodation for a condition i don't take it literally mm. and i and i think that i think that matters in some situations and not others i mean when i go out and buy a loaf of bread i don't think it matters you know i don't think everyone in the grocery store needs to know my entire history and needs all the details i don't think they'd care and i don't think that would be appropriate um but it, you know, it matters in, in certain ways. It matters, matters in terms of um, you know, my most intimate relationships. It matters in terms of my medical care. Um, it matters in terms of certain policies and laws. And, and I think that's becoming obscured by the, by the mm -hmm. politics that wants, us, wants to see us as just men because we think we are, just women because we think we are. Um, but I think it's more appropriate to think of it as, a, as it's a legal contract that we have with society where we're we're granted the opportunity to, to do this if it provides us some relief from a condition. But I think, I think we need clarity uh, on what that legal fiction is, you know, that we're granted this opportunity, but what are our responsibilities and what are the limits of that legal fiction? I don't think we've ever really um, clarified that. And, and I know that there are activists who want to take an, you know, the extreme position on that and say, well, in, in terms of law, I just want to be considered as a trans woman, I just want to be considered legally female or as a trans man, I just want to be considered legally male. But I think, I think we need a more nuanced definition of these things that still allows me and let people like me this opportunity as a treatment. But I think it's nonsensical. And I think we're, we're already seeing very clear problems with mm -hmm. completely denying biological reality and so that assessment process uh, has that um, you were saying that that's changed since um since you transitioned how, how has it changed is it a, a 
from what I'm gathering, it seems to have shortened drastically to the point where um, someone might go to a doctor and then say that they think they're, they're, they're trans and then the doctor just says, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then they move forward with the, um, the surgeries. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I can't paint the entire system with one broad brush because I think there's I think there's a lot of differences from clinic to clinic or office to mm -hmm. office how people are practicing. I think some people are still doing careful assessment and are and are fighting really hard to defend that practice. Um, and I think there are and there are still those that are doing very ethical exploratory therapy and are trying really hard to defend that practice against accusations of conversion therapy. Um, um. <coughs> excuse me. Um, so I think there are still people doing good work, but I think there are now, well, I know for certain that there are now clinics that are really trying to eliminate all of that mm -hmm. and um, are, are assessing in a single visit, not, not doing any kind of comprehensive psychosocial assessment, but are just assessing, do you seem stable enough to make this decision? If yes, you, you get the mm -hmm. green lights. So really eliminating any meaningful assessment like, like, for example, a differential diagnosis, like it, what if somebody, <clears throat> and I know people like this, um, what if somebody has autism and they mistake their mm -hmm. social difficulties and they mistake some of their symptoms of autism for gender dysphoria? Now, I, I have a close friend who's in that boat. Um, I also know a detransitioner in that boat where they had autism. They, they mistook autism for gender dysphoria believed that transitioning would would help with that and and it didn't and and then got that the autism diagnosis after transitioning and then once they had that diagnosis realized well actually now that i'm learning about autism that kind of that maps onto my experiences better than a, a gender uh, dysphoria diagnosis so i think misdiagnosis can happen and, and when we mm -hmm. don't think of gender dysphoria as a condition anymore because that's what that's what the activists are pushing for is this isn't a pathology at all. This isn't a diagnosis. I just am who I say I am. Um, well, if, you, if it's not a diagnosis of any kind, it makes it very difficult to do any kind of differential diagnosis for somebody. And, and um, when I was working with youth as a clinician, I had, res I had concerns about that because some of these youth were coming in with very complex histories, you know, psychiatric histories, trauma mm -hmm. histories very complex presentations are saying, I want to be trans. I want to change my body. And it, it's not like I wasn't trying to say, no, you're not. And no, I'm not going to do this for you. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to take my time to get to know these young people and help them understand these layers of things that they were experiencing just to make sure that they were making the, that they really, at the end of the day, felt like they were making the right choice for themselves. And my concern, and I was getting into trouble as a clinician for t trying to take that time because because in my province the push is towards that more informed consent model where if they want it they get it and and i think that's dangerous practice mm. well that especially that's... yeah especially for minors well that that's a nice segue into the next kind of body of questions i have is when people when i speak about this issue because i'm 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 very fascinated by this issue just because i think that the the implications, the consequences, whether they're positive or negative, they have the potential to be very vast. Like I, I was just writing today about about this topic, actually, just saying that this I'm going to be recording this podcast. And I think the words I used was, it has the potential to change the fabric of society and culture. And so we really better get it right. And, mm -hmm. and my worry is that if we get it wrong, it's young people that pay the price 
and it really worries me i'm not sure how how much this is happening because it is kind of mainstream narratives that i'm getting that some of this information i'm getting is coming from um but children perhaps not needing parental consent to have possibly irreversible surgeries possibly giving puberty blockers when they're under 18 that worries me and it also worries me what you were saying there about um people who detransition or people who regret the decision people don't like to talk about that they don't like to admit that there might be people that regret it because that just goes against their sort of narrative but mm. we we don't have the long-term studies for this sort of thing for people who do regret it you're not going to see that for a long time because um i just i just feel like it, it's growing so exponentially right now and we're, mm. we're kind of rushing into all of, all of this especially policy wise and i just i fear that it's young people that are going to pay the possible negative price of that yeah and, and it's not just the exponential growth that concerns me i mean that that it does concern me but more so it's the uh it's the presentation of those people that are showing up that has changed i mean there's there's a lot of question marks about the nature of those people because there probably is some growth some mm -hmm. natural growth from destigmatizing yeah. it and and it's mm -hmm. in the media and people are aware of it so i mean like my me for example it was very clear to everyone around me that I something was going on for me from a very early age, but I never was taken to a gender clinic as a kid. So there probably were a lot of kids like me that were experiencing it. Nobody knew what it was. Trans wasn't on our radar. Uh, mm. I had never even heard of anyone trans. I grew up in a little farming town. I never even heard of anyone transitioning. So there probably are more of kids like me being taken taken to clinics at an earlier mm -hmm. age. So I so I buy that to to a certain extent, but I don't buy that, that that is, that is the reason for that 4,000% increase. And what's mm -hmm. different about this new cohort, two things, well, actually three things. So one is the sex ratio was completely flipped. Now, if you, if you go back to um, what I was saying about the three pathways to gender dysphoria that are currently in the DSM-5, uh, so of those three pathways, about 80% of those are gonna be males natal males because autogynephilia pretty much only happens to males. Um, the homosexual subtype, they're far more gay men than there are gay women. And then among gay women, there are far fewer butch lesbians. And historically it was only butch lesbians that were transitioning. So you've got, and they say that autogynephilia, that subtype is the vast majority of trans women that were transitioning. So back before, you know, we understood trans and this was all, a, you know, a, a popular media um, darling, people who worked at gender clinics, they saw two types of two types of people coming to the clinics. They saw mostly middle-aged men who were heter had lived heterosexual lives. They were often married, had kids, mm -hmm. off, often in the military. So that's mostly who was coming to clinics. And then when pediatric clinics opened up, they were seeing um, some kids, but most of those kids grew up to be gay or lesbians. So it was mostly heterosexual men transitioning. That was about 80%. Um, the second largest group would have been the very highly effeminate gay men who had gender dysphoria. So they would have been like this very effeminate boys and you know, this insistence that they were, that they were um, girls. And so they were transitioning and then butch, a few butch lesbians, and then a handful of people with disorders of sex development. Um, 
So if you think of like 80, about 80% of people with, who experience gender dysphoria are males, it doesn't make sense. Like having all these girls with no childhood history of extreme gender non-conforming behavior or expressing, I think a mistake is made, you know, these girls in adolescence announcing that they're trans, we've never seen that before. And it doesn't map onto our understanding of what gender dysphoria is because those girls, you know, if, if they were same sex attracted, you know, we, we would have seen some evidence of that in their childhood. So that the, the type of gender dysphoria that emerges in adolescence or later in life was usually the autogynophilic type of, of males. So the sex ratio reversal doesn't make sense. And unless there's a type of gender dysphoria or a pathway to gender dysphoria that we just don't yet understand, but let's take our time to understand it. So I'm not saying that those girls, maybe, maybe they do have a, a, a legitimate type of gender dysphoria, but we don't understand it yet. So that doesn't seem like the time to be opening up the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the doors wide open saying, well, we're not going to assess you or understand you because there is a completely new cohort of people that we're seeing at clinics. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a point um, a previous guest had. It was about two years ago, um, Helen Pluckrose. She's a, a writer and um, an editor of a magazine in London. And she made the point that the stats show, I think this is in the UK, that the number of teenage girls who identify as boys has shot up, whereas the amount of teenage girls who identify as lesbian has shot down. And so that shows that it's there's some form of a trend going on. That yes, the, the number will go up as it becomes destigmatized and it becomes um, more widely accepted, but may, pro probably not to that same extent. And she was yeah. saying that maybe being trans is the new kind of emo and goth, the kind of anti-culture um, identity. But the difference is, is that people aren't medically transitioning to emo or goth. People, people are now like children are now being, are yeah, it's irreversible surgeries and, and and stuff like that. So that's the main difference, and that's the worry I have, and that that Helen had, and that you seem to have as well. I, I do have that, and especially when you know, like me, if you get this message that these experiences that you have means you are a trans person, so not a gay person, not a butch lesbian, you are a trans person. That has been our narrative now for a good 15 years at least. And that's the message families and children are getting. So if kids like me have an experience of gender dysphoria, could be a very real diagnosable type of, of gender dysphoria, they're not being told, well, that's highly correlated with homosexuality. So it, it really limits their thinking about this. If someone had came to me and my family when I was five, when it was obvious that I was struggling with something and they said, Hey, this is what it is. This is called gender identity disorder. It's something a lot of gay and lesbian people experience as children. Your child is probably going to grow up to be gay. Um, that's what it means. And, and most of the time people, you know, when, once they become adults and sort out their sexuality and support, you know, support your child with their sexuality, embrace that chances are, this is going to resolve itself by the time they're an adult. That mm -hmm. is the, that's the correct message according to the science. And that's not the message that families or children are receiving. So families and children are being told you have these experiences, you're trans. So socially transition them when they're older, let's medically transition them. 
that's that's the pathway. So they're not being given correct information and they're not even being mm -hmm. given an opportunity to resolve it and become a healthy, happy, healthy adult homosexual. Mm. It seems that we seem to be forgetting that that children and teenagers just go through phases. That's just the nature of, of being a child. I remember when I was like three or four, um, I used to play for pram and I used to play with dolls. And that was for a few months. My mom got me a pram. And I remember as soon as I got the pram, I didn't want it anymore. So, but the worrying thing there is that um, if that was in this time, and I had perhaps different parents, they might have thought you must be a, a, a girl then if that's if that's what you're doing. Um, and so that's really worrying. And it's also just worrying that like teenagers go through multiple phases. That's the point of being a teenager. And your, your hormones are going crazy anyway. You're, you've got massive mood swings, anxiety. And I, I think the problem is that now in this age of social media and TikTok, that teenagers who feel disillusioned or are struggling with their identities which is completely natural for a teenager go on to tiktok and there'll be an influencer there who says i transitioned and that solved all of my problems and then that's teenagers are so susceptible to that sort of thing well some teenagers anyway um and if you if you're not if there's no barriers to to transition then that's that's worrying it seems like we're just forgetting that teenagers have phases and we should acknowledge that and just pump the brakes a bit mm -hmm. I do absolutely believe that there is a youth subculture that's developed based on queer theory. Um, they have a very, it is a lot like goth or punk. They have a very specific sort of aesthetic that unfortunately also includes things like self-harm. So one of, one of the really common aesthetics with um, a lot of the girls um, that are part of this youth subculture is, you know, cutting on, on the upper arms and a certain type of makeup and and shaving eyebrows and so there's a very and piercings there's a very specific aesthetic uh with these these young people um and and i've known some of these these kids personally i, I have some in my life where i knew them growing up um they had some some emotional dysregulation problems but they're also very sensitive smart they were very sensitive smart girls um but weren't gender non-conforming and are now as teenagers into this youth subculture, calling themselves different, you know, neo pronouns, and the pronouns changing repeatedly, and and the self harm scars that they don't they don't hide, you know, that it's it's because it's part of the subculture, so they kind of want them to be visible, and um, and I do think some of them take it too far and end up getting double mastectomies as part mm -hmm. of, it's like a body modification cult. Mm -hmm. it's, I've heard it's a, it's alarming, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard anecdotally in some schools, um, this is in America that I was, I was hearing this, that there's a hierarchy of identity of how cool you're going, how cool or how popular you're going to be in, in school. And being trans is, is a very cool thing to be. And obviously right at the bottom would be like straight cisgendered man. Um, and so that's... That's where again, have you seen have you seen that sort of thing where it's 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 that sort of it's like intersectionality in schools mm -hmm. for anyone the, the theory of intersectionality was introduced by Kimberly Crenshaw um, and she the theory to me is a useful theory for thinking about oppression but the application of it is problematic it basically says that um, oppression isn't just can't just be one road it, it intersects. Um, between different forms of oppression. So a, a, a woman who's black um, will have two forms of oppression intersecting um, from one being black and one from being women. 
Um, and that seems to be what's happening in schools where it's an inter it's that sort of intersectionality of and it's a hierarchy of intersectionality and and at the top would would be trans um and yeah at the bottom like i said cisgendered straight man yeah and it's it's you know i've always been left-leaning but it, in recent years that is that is um one way in which i have walked away from the left in mm. term is that is that critical theory way of thinking about oppression I, I mean having lived part of my life as a butch lesbian I, it's not that i don't believe that homophobia exists it's not that i don't believe that racism mm -hmm. exists these are very these are real experiences that should be addressed absolutely but i don't think i think critical theory really misses the mark in terms of a solution mm -hmm. and and so i won't i won't and it's created separate problems so i, I won't support it for that reason but again not it's not because i don't want to do anything about about mm -hmm. discrimination but it, it's right, like it, it, especially when you're a young person who, when you think of, of a teenager, their developmental task is to fit in somewhere. And if they are being taught the critical theory way of thinking through these problems, you're absolutely right that it creates a hierarchy in which the more oppressed you are, the more valid your voice is over anyone else's. It, it's like a social currency. Yeah. And so if you're a, a straight white girl, um, and I say, I say girl, it happens to boys too, but I say girl just because it's happening to them, I think more so than the boys. Mm -hmm. But if, if, if you're, if you're straight and white, then you're, you're boring and, and, and you're an oppressor and who want, who wants to be an oppressor, but all you have to do is call yourself non-binary and do absolutely nothing. Maybe wear some, some, you know, funky clothing and some funky makeup and suddenly you're not an oppressor anymore. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? What? Wh how do you think schools should approach this issue of gender? At, w at what age, or or should it be introduced at all? Should it be part of any curriculum at schools? And I'm seeing that in the UK anyway. We we're seeing that that's being introduced in primary as early yeah. as primary school here. Pretty yeah, he here as well. Um, I'm in Canada, so yes, they're they're teaching you know like the gender spectrum and the gender unicorn mm -hmm. and stuff in schools and. Uh, where's the evidence for that like i don't even under i do most people don't even know where that came from like do, do you know where this idea of a gender spectrum came from like no, we're all being taught it but nobody knows what the origin of that is it's it's like it came out of nowhere mm -hmm. uh and i don't i don't see how that's helpful you know if i let's say i was five and in this classroom where they're teaching about the gender spectrum i don't see how that would have been helpful for me either like so i have a condition called gender dysphoria it doesn't mean that i'm like a third gender or it doesn't mean that i'm somewhere mm -hmm. on this spectrum like i think that's really confusing kids and it's yeah it's a it's a it's a political narrative it, it's not factual it's not science-based if there's if there's a child in a class who's experiencing gender dysphoria you know, absolutely you know there are probably ways of supporting that child and helping their peers understand you know don't bully them and and this condition exists um but I don't think kids need to be taught about sexuality or gender at an early age at all. I, I don't see where that's the place of schools to be teaching a, a political narrative that's confusing kids because I've seen the spectrum. I mean, on one end, so it's one line on one side is GI Joe on the other side is Barbie. It's like, well, based on that, I'm not a man either because I'm certainly not a GI Joe. Like, so, I mean, unless you're a GI Joe and or unless you're a Barbie, that means what, that you're, that you're trans or you're a third. Yeah. Like it, it makes no sense. And most people aren't a GI Joe or a Barbie. Most of us, 
everybody has aspects of their personality and their temperament that is a mix of what we would think of as masculine or feminine traits. And that's completely separate from having a mm. psychological condition called gender dysphoria. Mm. And what do you, what's your opinion on, I, I can probably guess, but on raising children gender neutral? I'm seeing some stories about that as well. I, I, think, it, I think it confuses them. I mean, we are the sex that we are whether we like it or not. If someone has gender dysphoria, absolutely, you know, there's there's a pathway of helping them and supporting them. And, and later in life, if it hasn't resolved and it's causing functional impairment, um, you know, I, I, I reserve that option for people to, to medicalize. But I think that should be a last resort. And um, and I think, I, I think it's confusing kids to say, well, I mean, when my daughter was, before my daughter was born, we chose not to tell people what her gender would be because um, her mom in particular was very much about, well, I don't believe in gender, gender stereotypes and, and I do support that. There's no reason that because we had a girl child that everyone had to buy pink. So, so we were being sub, sub, subversive at that time saying, well, regardless of the sex of our child, um, we don't know what that child's personality is going to be. And, you know, this kid may be a girl that likes to wear baseball caps and jeans. We don't know. But that that's about gender stereotypes. And and so we kind of were being subversive by saying, well, we're not going to tell you what the sex of our child is going to be. And if you're really concerned about wanting to buy us clothing and stuff for this child, buy green or purple or mm. any any color you want because that doesn't matter, right? So... But that I think that I think is different than confusing the idea of biological sex. I mean, when our child was born, it was clear that she was a girl. If she had gender demonstrated gender dysphoria later in life, well, that would have been a separate conversation. But she was a girl, and there was no confusion about that. Mm. I think some people also um, forget that there is just differences between boys and girls and men and women. There just is naturally differences, not just um, physical, but just in the way that men and women think psychologically. And yes, yeah, some people like some people would say would argue that that's down to um, social constructs and um, the way that society molds men and molds women. But to me, I do, I do think that men just are different to women. And um, I would imagine I've, I've not I've not got studies to back this up. But I imagine if you if you, you raise a hundred um, children gender neutral, I would say the majority of them would still identify as what they were identified as at, at birth. Um, and that's just because boys and girls just are different mm -hmm. on the most part. Absolutely. I mean, even the fact that, you know, something like autogynephilia only for the most part exists, I think there's some, maybe a few very, very rare cases of women having paraphilias, mm. but for the most part, paraphilias only happen to men and that's because men's sexuality and psychology is different hmm. I, just switching gears a little bit um, you've spoken before in a podcast about the social cues you experienced after transitioning um, so the social cues of being a man what and um, what were they and how, how was that experience yeah i mean people perceive their sense of of safety for example depending on whether you're there's surrounded by men or women it's, it's a visceral response that people have and so i learned pretty quickly that people need more physical space from me now that i appear male 
Um, so I ran into, into situations cause I never didn't have many, I was definitely bullied and, and harassed for being a masculine appearing masculine woman. Um, but I was, I still was picking up on social cues. And, um, so just doing all the same things that I had been doing, but now appearing male, I noticed people were responding to me differently. And I ran into a, a, a difficult frightening situation one time I was just walking down the street doing some window shopping on my lunch break and the guy in front of me spun around and called me a faggot and you know um accused me of like what looking at his ass or something and it's like I was oblivious to the whole situation but I guess I had been walking a little bit too closely behind him and and that just wouldn't have occurred to me um, when I was, you know, female, female and, and appearing female, it just didn't occur to me, but it, and I don't think I, it's not like I was walking right behind them either, but people perceive physical space differently with men than they do women. And, um, even touch like men touch other men in ways that I don't even know if they're aware of it, but whether it's slapping them on the back, or I remember the first time a guy like put his hand on my chest. I mean, that that had never happened to me as as female because that would have been really appropriate but mm-hmm. inappropriate if you did that to a woman and it's it's something that i wish trans guys ha- had more license to talk about because i would have appreciated support just working through and figuring out all those little little nuances that you can't possibly know until until you're living it but I remember a guy um, on one of the listservs, it was like a, one of those old-fashioned email listservs that we used to have. Um, it was a listserv for trans guys in the, our province. And a guy was talking about an experience with his doctor. His doctor, I think, had like pat him up, patted him on the back and said, hey, by the way, lay off the burgers. Meaning you could afford to lose a few pounds. Mm-hmm. And... The response from a lot of the trans guys was, oh, that's so fat phobic. We should, you know, we should do a letter writing campaign against this doctor and call him out on this bullshit. And, you know, so mm-hmm. it just turned into um, like an oppression, oppression narrative. And I stepped in with a different perception of it. I said, had it occurred to you that he was just treating you like a dude, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're transitioning to become male. Maybe he was just trying to treat you as male as a way as of affirming your identity. Mm-hmm. And the moderator of the group jumped in and said, no, you're being like um, cis heteronormative and this is an appropriate conversation on the listserv. And other, some of the younger guys on the listserv popped up and said, well, actually I'm finding this conversation helpful because that hadn't occurred to me, right? That men socially interact with each other differently because I'm sure mm-hmm. that male doctor probably wouldn't have padded it a female patient on the back and said, Hey, you're fat, lay off the burgers. Right. So, but men talk to each other differently Mm -hmm. to each other. And we have to learn. I saw that as my responsibility and, and what I wanted from my transition, I wanted to do this successfully and not bother anyone around me. I wanted to be able to just function in the world as, as male to the best of my ability, which included learning some of those social interactions and picking up on those social cues. For me, that was an important part of my transition. And there's so little support to do that. If you're buying into this queer theory narrative and your transition is all about being subversive and disrupting society, then you're not trying to pick up social cues. You're not trying to get along with other people Mm -hmm. and blend in. And unfortunately, a lot of people have politicized trans to the degree that uh, we're not 
you know, going back to this concept of a, of a legal fiction, we're not stepping up to our responsibility in that legal fiction to say, I want to do this in a way that is mutually agreeable in society. I don't want to do harm to society. I don't want to disrupt my community or my church or my family or wherever mm. I am. I, and, and, but for, it's become so politicized and so many people are transitioning for political reasons. I think that they're, tr they're actively trying to disrupt Mm. And, and and then wonder why we're we're getting such pushback. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you've have you seen the documentary What Is a Woman, Matt Walsh's documentary. I have, I'm wondering yeah. what your opinion of that is. I have my own opinions, but I'm wondering what your your opinion of it. I thought it was interesting. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it was I think he did a good job of I, I mean, I don't think Matt Wal Walsh and I agree on on everything. He's he's mm -hmm. more conservative than I am. But mm -hmm. it, just looking at the documentary at face value, I think he did a good job of just revealing how nonsensical the queer theory based ideology is. Mm -hmm. that we can't even have a conversation about just material reality. Um, I think I think he did a good job of exposing that. Mm. And just on that theme, do you have an opinion on? Because I can I can imagine that some people's reaction to my opinions would be you don't have the right to have an opinion because you're not trans, you're not part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, and so why should we listen to you, or why is your opinion valid? Um, do you have an opinion on, on, on people who like, obviously I can't have, I can't have an opinion on the experience of being trans, but I believe I, I'm, I'm perfectly entitled to have an, an opinion on the policy um, surrounding it and um, the, the social and cultural changes that are occurring at the moment. Yeah. We're living in really tricky times, aren't we? Cause we live in a pluralist society where our neighbors maybe have a different different yeah. political leaning or different values different religions than we have and and somehow we have to exist as a society together um i think i think it's i think it's human nature that we're going to have opinions about things um i have opinions about other countries social yeah. polities or uh their human rights violations um so i i guess it's hard to know where exactly do, do you draw the line between having an opinion wanting to advocate for certain values i mean people i don't know like I, i'm not ukrainian or russian but i have an opinion mm. about what's happening over there so um but at the same time we also have to have boundaries where we allow people um freedom to live their lives according to their own values as long as they're not hurting anybody else so mm. it is hard it is hard to know like when at what when do we impose certain values because we feel like something's wrong and when in a pluralistic society do we agree to disagree and say look i don't share your religion i don't share your politics i vote for a different party but we're still neighbors and mm -hmm. and it concerns me how much that is breaking down that, that we've become these very separate ideological camps that are becoming more and more extreme to the extent that we can't get along as as neighbors or communities or countries anymore like it feels like if this gets worse we're headed for civil war because Mm -hmm. we can't seem to coexist having differences of opinion anymore mm. and just before we end i want to be sympathetic of your time 
Do you have advice for anyone who's experiencing gender dysphoria or someone who knows someone that's experiencing gender dysphoria, parents, um, how, how should they approach um, the situation? I think it's important to understand what gender dysphoria is from an evidence basis and some why organization that is our goal because we feel that information is being really obscured um, by activists with an ideological agenda. Um, so I think it's important for dis any decision making that parents and, and young people who, or even adults experiencing gender dysphoria, that they just understand the truth of what that experience is and what that means. Because I think that empowers people to make the best choices for themselves. Um, you know, going back to what I was saying, you know, with, with childhood onset gender dysphoria, I'm sure parents, if they understood that most of the time that's a developmental stage in the development of homosexuality, they would probably make very different choices for their child than if they're told your child is trans, they'll always be trans and they need to transition. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think the information that they have should be accurate and well understood before making any permanent decision because even social transition is a clinical intervention. It's actually a very powerful clinical intervention. So telling kids, you know, that they truly are the sex they think they are and affirming that and, and changing the, that legally and giving them a new name, that's a very powerful clinical intervention that is potentially going to lock them into an identity prematurely and make it a lot harder for them to desist. And it's, I'm not saying that because I think it's awful to be a trans person. I'm just saying mm -hmm. if they could have avoided lifelong medical mm -hmm. treat, treatment and all of the complications that can come from that, why would, avoid it, why would avoiding that be a bad thing? Um, if they can learn to be comfortable in their own bodies, whether mm -hmm. it's a butch, butch lesbian or an effeminate gay man, if they can learn to be comfortable with that, why is that a bad thing? So I think it's really important that the families have accurate information. Mm. And just to finish up, um, where can people stay up to date with what you're doing? Where can people find the Gender Dysphoria Alliance? Um, yeah. yeah, thanks. Um, yes, we have a, a website with a lot of information called at uh, www.genderdysphoriaalliance.com. Um, and we also have a podcast called Transparency on YouTube, as well as um, audio only on podcast apps. Uh, and tons of tons of resources. We're on social media, so it'd be great if, if someone wants to re reach out to us. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, this the conversation was exactly how I wanted it to be. It was very open, non-judgmental. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for for taking the time and like shedding some light on these issues for me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And so that's the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening. It genuinely means a lot. I hope you found that conversation interesting. Before you go, I would just like to ask again if you could please subscribe or follow wherever you're listening and if you could leave a good review where possible, that would also be greatly appreciated. You can also, like I said at the start, sign up for the Struggle for Meaning newsletter by going to gregorthompson.com. I promise you won't be disappointed. You can also stay up to date with everything concerning the podcast and all of the other work I'm doing by following my social media channels. My Facebook page is Gregor Thompson Journalist. My Instagram is Gregor S. Thompson, all one word. And you can also watch the podcast on my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. All of these links will be in the show notes to make it easier for you. But for now, thank you very much for listening. It genuinely means a lot. And I'll see you next time for the next episode of the In Context Podcast.